That one intro was really amazing. <laughs> so I had to lose it. You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the S E A. You know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the S E A. Hello and welcome to episode 387 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in separate locations. This week, I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. The throwback Seattle Seahawks. There we all go. All of a sudden. Thrown all the way back to the Jojo Vicious edition. <laughs> Jojo Vicious, did he he played in the current jerseys though, so that doesn't work, does it? Did Sean Dawkins, the late Sean Dawkins, who we remembered earlier this year on this pod, he wore eighty seven too, right? Okay, there we and go. Somebody been, who wore those jerseys, yeah, that would. Now been we're talking blow. is the Sean Dawkins edition. Oh no, he wore he wore eighty one for the Seahawks. He was eighty seven for the Colts. So honestly, you know, we should still be honoring Sean Dawkins. So I I agree. I, I think that is that is perfectly appropriate. Seahawks who wore number eighty seven in the uh, in that era. Carlister Crumpler in the nineties. Okay. Uh, Derek Mays was wearing it when when playing with Sean Dawkins. With Mike e? Tice. Oh, hello. So there Nate's, you go. Nate's dad, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Definitely Nate's dad. So there you go. Would have never imagined that his child would be a proficient podcaster. After a long NFL career. And Mariner's fan. And Mariner's fan. Maybe you would have imagined that, actually, since obviously he was <laughs> Mariner's fan, he's probably, yes. He was like, if my child can just grow up to post really well. <laughs> you know, that's what all parents dream of their children becoming, is podcasters. You can't imagine how proud Jan is. You know what? I'd rather them be a proficient podcaster than an improficient podcaster. Huh? That's true. That's, That's a good all point. I can ask for. Look, my my children's greatest dreams are to be a YouTuber, so I can't really say anything. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get into it. We've got a lot to get to this week, including, of course, our traditional ten players, NBA players to watch Hello. this season. We're a little later into the season than usual because we're recording this on Wednesday night, coming out Thursday morning. But uh, still, eighty-one games for you to watch these wow. players, as I'm sure you attentively will. I, I was going to say, we we finally have everybody's favorite segment back. You've been waiting all year for it. Uh, I don't mean to build up the hype, but Kevin Pelton ranks his favorite horror movies. <laughs> oh, no, no, we're doing we're doing the uh, uh, the players to watch. Got it. I forgot which which favorite segment we were doing. Uh, it, it's not really a Halloween movie necessarily. I watched Edward Scissorhands for the first time. There we go. Over the weekend. Good stuff. All right, let's start with this week's beer from our friends at Matchless Brewing. We're headed back to Tumwater. Hello. As we often go. Uh, the It's the best. The as best, we often go. The Fresh Coast, West Coast Fresh Hop IPA. That one's a, a mouthful. The West Coast is the best coast when we're talking about fresh hops, obviously. And if anyone knows that more than us, it's our friends at Varietal Brewing in Sunnyside, Washington, and Odd Pitch Brewing in Missoula, Montana. They helped with the creation of this crisp and clean fresh hop IPA. And a big thanks to Moxie's Van Horn Farms for growing some fantastic Cascade hops because West Coast IPAs are best fresh in the West. There we go. Sally uh, shells, she shells by the seashore. 
Uh, speaking of that, so horror movies, I was, this is a little story for you. Uh, I was watching Talk to Me. It's an A24 horror film from Australia. Are you familiar with this at all? No, I'm not. I believe it is the second highest grossing A24 film of all time now, and it came out this year. I'm familiar with A24. There you go. Uh, <laughs> it has topped Uncut Gems. You wouldn't believe it. Kevin Garnett has been bested. What, uh, would you describe Uncut Gems as a horror movie? No, well. That intense. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I'm watching this movie, right? This is last night. Uh, me, me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius. It's a very, very intense movie. More than scary, it's kind of just like you you get really like tense and into it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's a this is like 11.30 p.m. There's a knock at the door. Literally, probably, what is the scariest thing that could happen while you're watching a horror movie at nighttime? And you were right? recording a Taco Time podcast when you got the knock on the door. I, I jump into action, right, immediately, and I'm like, what is going on? You know that my house is full of baseball bats, and I cannot find a baseball bat <laughs> anywhere. I'm looking around. I found, honestly, my best bet, it was a golf club, which I determined actually might, for the burglar that, or whatever it was that had knocked at my door, I determined golf club actually maybe would do more damage here in protecting myself and my family. Yeah, you concentrate the force in a specific location. You can swing it harder. That's an interesting question. (laughs) That's what we're here to break down on the Felton cast. Uh, Anyway, so I'm looking in every room. I go into the basement. I look at every door, back door, front door. I don't see anything. I'm like out of my mind. I'm sweating, heart is pounding, looking for who this person is, right? And I'm like, what could this have possibly been? The bunny that lives in our living room, as featured on this podcast, <laughs> thumped his legs four times, knock, 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 on the hardwood floor. <laughs> I could not have been more terrified in my entire life. So, Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. A little beer news this week while we're on this topic. Rubens Bruce has opened up a new tap room on Fremont, Fremont Avenue, just north of Paseo there. Really? So, good to hear. Uh, all right, let's get to this week's toast, starting with a congratulations to O.L. Rain, who snapped their nine-game losing streak in knockout stage matches with Friday's 1-0 win over Angel City FC, advancing to the NWSL semifinals. Their last knockout stage win the 2015 NWSL semifinals. Wow. A congratulations to Utah football legend Lincoln Kennedy, one of three members of this year's Rose Ball Hall of Fame class, obviously part of the 1991 Huskies. I think Kennedy was part of all three back-to-back-to-back Rose Ball teams, if I recall correctly. Uh, and lastly, this week, a congratulations. Wow, to... we just brushed right through that. We got to, We've got to get to the to the players to watch. Did I mean, I, I, on, on all, literally, Lake? all I was going to comment is of like, what is a Rose Bowl Hall of Fame? It's a Hall of Fame for the Rose Bowl. I, the I thing, think the things that we are toasting to. It's like one step up from Pelton Cast Hall of Fame. I I think it's a pretty considerable step up. <laughs> First off, there's surely an induction, you know, an actual uh, induction ceremony in person, whereas Pelton Cast Hall of Famers have not gotten to come together and celebrate their Pelton Cast Hall of Fame induction. Although the invitation is open anytime, anytime, Jamal Crawford. (laughs) 
All right, lastly this week, a congratulations to Julio Rodriguez, who was named a finalist for Gold Glove in the outfield. All right, before we get to the players to watch, what we was have... the play? There's a play that Julio, oh, against the Astros after striking out from Hector Neris. I was like, because of course we're in, we are in full on Mariners off season mode. I am full negative about the Mariners right oh, now. No, uh, but and, and it, uh, most importantly, we should put this maybe if he wins the World Series. Toast to Corbin Carroll, uh, Seattle native, making the World Series. Are we, are we toasting to Paul Seawald? And a toast to Paul Seawald. It's funny the people who are mad about Paul Seawald. We're not talking any more baseball in this podcast, right? This is it. I don't have any notes. Although, if we want to talk about the Paul Seawald comments, I'm prepared to do so. Oh, are there Paul Seawald comments specifically? Well, yeah, he went on a podcast and said that he agreed with Cal Raleigh about everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what what a weird thing to say. Like, he agreed with Cal Raleigh that the Mariners should have better players. <laughs> that they should spend more money, specifically. I will say, for people who are looking to, like, victory lap this one, the Diamondbacks making the World Series is not exactly making your point, because not only do they have a lower payroll than the Mariners, like, this isn't an Orioles situation where, you know, they have just a bunch of amazing young talent. But their most expensive player on the roster, current roster, makes less money than not only Robbie Ray, but also Teoscar Hernandez. The Mariners added a player last offseason who makes more money than anyone on the Diamondbacks. So I just most wanted to throw that out just to- toast to Corbin Carroll. Uh, grew up in Lower Queen Anne, right next to my boss. I-, I heard about him when he was quite young and so stoked that he's playing in the World Series. Paul Seawald, it is funny people being upset retroactively about the Paul Seawald trade because Paul Seawald is now, I mean, save right in the NLCS game seven of the NLCS. Cool. Calm collected with that save. I watched a lot of Paul Seawald this year and while his stats looked good at no point did I trust Paul Seawald in the way that I trusted him in the NLCS game seven, the amount of games and you could look back at it. Throughout the season, you make all the comments you want, Paul Seawald. If you had saved one, one of the games that you blew this season, the Mariners would have been in the playoffs too. So I I think it's a little bit much for somebody who had, I mean, he blew quite a few games. I think you're, you're overestimating how bad Paul Seawald, ineffective Paul Seawald was. Or the Mariners, yeah, the Mariners would like take the lead. Paul Seawald comes back and gives up a run. There were four or five times that I was listening to it. And I was like, thank God the Mariners finally did this. And then boom, Seawald blows the save. And uh, the other piece is like, we still have Josh Rojas was awesome. And Dominic Canzone is a young hitter. Like, sorry about not having a reliever. But like, the Mariners were not going to be in game seven of the NLCS. Very literally, they were not going to be in Game 7 of the NLCS. Almost no chance. I also look this up. Like The one argument you can make for the Diamondbacks is they did make win-now moves, obviously highlighted by Seawald at the deadline, and the Mariners didn't. But you look at it, even though they had like a slightly better record than the Mariners at the time, their playoff odds per fan graphs is of the Seawald trade were almost three times as high because the yeah. NL wildcard yes. race was so much weaker than it was in the AL. So... I, yes, if you knew for certain that the Mariners were going to miss winning the AL West by two games, then you would have handled the deadline early differently. But 
that's uh, information that was not available at the time. But the Mariners should still, still spend some money in free agency. But exactly. The like spending money thing in the Diamondbacks, how, how they relate to it, is kind of like, yes, one team can go to the World Series. Why did I not have stats? Five blown saves this year. I think those might have all been with the Mariners. Yeah, I can't find blown saves on baseball reference. Well, he so. had five blown saves. It doesn't list on fan graphs which team that was with. Although it does say Arizona zero. Well, I think that's probably playoff stats right now. Um, anyway, five blown saves is kind of a lot of blown saves. One of those games, Paul Seawald, one of those games. And the Mariners were in the playoffs. But also the two teams that played in the ALCS were in the AOS. And you traded a reliever, a reliever for young hitting. I do not begrudge the Paul Seawald trade. Uh one of those blown saves was with Arizona. Four of them were with the Mariners. I, I, I mean, I guess I don't know what like a high amount of blown saves is necessarily, but it seems like four in the time that he was there is kind of a large amount. No, actually, two of them were with the Arizona. Three of them were with the Mariners. Okay. So there you go. Well, uh, I mean, I do feel like the Diamondbacks kind of like the the... MLB playoffs being as random they are as they are, I think does justify the approach of we don't necessarily need to load up any one year. Let's just get in the playoffs as many times as possible in one of these years. We're gonna luck our way into the World Series. That I think would be my approach as a baseball. I mean, that's GM. that's but that's the thing about spending money is the more that you spend money, the, the more, more years you're in play. I, I yeah, agree with the that. The higher the likelihood, whether the Arizona Diamondbacks make the World Series one time. It's about if you make the playoffs every single year, and that I mean that ultimately is what Jerry Depoto's point is. That is the fifty-four percent mantra. But it's just about making the playoffs over and over and over again. And I have some very bad. News oh no! <laughs> oh no! Well, I've got some mixed news for you. We we alluded to this on this week's Talking Taco Time, which you should check out if you haven't already, as we've taste-tested the frozen bake-at-home crisp burritos that Taco Time Northwest is putting out on a trial basis, as well as the frozen Taco Time International beef taco pizza that's available at Costco inexplicably. Uh, Voodoo Donut is planning a Capitol Hill location on Pine Street, right down the street from Low Woody's. So... It's weird. I will go to Lil Woody's in, or I will go to Voodoo Donut in Portland. I'm not sure I will go to this location necessarily. Absolutely not. Yeah. I, I mean, right now, again, we've talked about this. Oregon is on like DEFCON, whatever, as high as it can go right now. I just, I still haven't, I still haven't gotten over it. Watching a Blazers over game. What? Just I, we won the game, man. I, it doesn't matter that they won the game. We didn't even talk the about the cheating. Were chill. We didn't even talk about the cheating in the Oregon game. They just—they're just. We, they're just we really bad. did not talk when, about when it. When you play Oregon, it gets under your skin for a long time, right? Oregon is in my fingernails right now, and I'm mad about it, right? Like I—I I don't think I'm gonna until this season is over. I don't think I'm gonna be okay with the state, and. So you're bringing that shit right there into I mean, Seattle, Washington, where there are better donuts, voodoo donut, and you think you're going to compete in Seattle, Washington, something that your boys from Eugene could not do this year. I am not okay with this, and it doesn't make sense on a practical level, partially because 
the donuts aren't that good. We had the whole argument about Krispy Kreme on that exact talk and taco time, right? The more accessibility for Voodoo Donut, the less likely I am to go to Voodoo Donut. And, and nobody, and I mean nobody, brings an organ business into our house and competes with donuts from Seattle, Washington. Thank you. I will be eating top pot. God damn it. What about salt and straw? Uh, speaking of top pot, though, that's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty good ice cream, but no, no Molly Moon. Molly Moon is way better. Not even right. close. Full tilt is way better. Mm, shouts to full tilt. Uh, so speaking of top pot, they have added to their menu donut holes. I don't know if that's like I've been eagerly anticipating that, but I I may try it out sometime. We had some donut holes from Dojoy at the UW. Yeah. Uh, Arizona State game, as we'll talk about in a bit here, because apparently they were all out of donuts when the famous cousin Katie went up there to get them for us and just had donut holes. That's what I'm saying. We've got Dojoy here in Seattle, Washington. And you think there's a market voodoo donut for you to bring whatever you do down there up here and compete with Seattle's best donut as was that, on by me? Was that an intentional voodoo that you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, a Kevin Calabroism currently broadcasting in Oregon. Oregon! <laughs> <laughs> With that, let's transition over to our NBA season preview. In our annual list of 10 players for you to watch, as always, this is a list of under-the-radar players, often rookies, often international players, often Denver Nuggets. I was going to say Denver Nuggets is the team. Because... <laughs> Obviously, this list is most beloved for the fact that in 2015, is a rookie, Nikola Jokic was part of this list long before he became a two-time MVP, long before he became a finals MVP. Yusuf Nurkic was on this list long before he became a beloved blazer for many years. Uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez, long before he became <laughs> the star of... Juancho Hernan Gomez. <laughs> long before he became the star of the movie Hustle. I was on this list somehow two years in a row. I was I considered <laughs> I a, a two-peat a return for someone on this really? list, but decided against it. It was going to be Luke Cornett. Oh, man. He's you playing a lot for the Celtics. I need more Cornett. Is he really? Oh, yeah. He's their backup center. I watched that game, and I didn't see. I, I guess I wasn't paying that close attention because I saw no Luke Cornett. Luke Cornett, who appeared on this list in 2019, it would, would certainly have been the longest that someone had gone between <laughs> appearances on this list. I definitely asked you who Sam Sam Mauser was, right? Hauser. Sam Hauser. Ah, oh, damn it. Who's Sam Mauser? I don't, I don't know who Sam Mauser is. Oh, I think that might be a family that I know. Okay. Uh, last year, Nuggets rookie Christian Brown appeared on this list before he okay. played a key role in the and NBA that's, Finals. That's actually really funny. So you mentioned Christian Brown. Oh, you know who else was on this list last year? Who was that? Sam Hauser. <laughs> I didn't figure so out his last name. You were not watching Sam Hauser. <laughs> but I know I watched Christian Brown in the NBA Finals, and I was like, I've never once heard of this person. Literally, the name Christian Brown has never once been mentioned to me before. And I'm, I'm watching the finals, pronouncing his name wrong, of, of course. And I'm like, who is this Braun guy? Why did nobody alert me to him back in October? 
I may have gone too obscure last year. Christian Brown and Sam Hauser were, I think, Santi Aldama. There were three guys on this list who like actually played rotation minutes over the course of the season. <laughs> so You're, you were trying I tried to, to get too hipster. I tried to get a little less obscure this year. And that starts with our first player. Are we going to okay. guess? Are you going to guess which teams these players are I, on? I, I mean, I just uh, sure. Our first player is Jalen Johnson. Oh, I saw him actually. He is on the um on the Hawks. There you go. I I saw go. highlights of him. He had two for. dunks earlier. They were they were like, is this the Hawks game or is this a dunk contest? And I was expecting it to be something incredible having thrown <laughs> it down. And it was just like it was a nice dunk. Uh he is starting at power forward for the Hawks with the departure of John Collins. It's his third season, but chance to uh, step into a big role. I guess he actually did not start tonight. Sadiq Bey got the start, but uh Jalen Johnson played 29 minutes off the bench, scored 21 points on nine at 13 shooting, seven boards, playing as a Duke alum under under Duke alum Quinn Snyder as head coach. I think he's in for a huge year. How is that Hawks team? Because I, I feel well, like they lost to the Hornets tonight. Not good. So not not an ideal start for them, although I, I have maintained all offseason that the Hornets are wildly underrated. So there you So you go. took a victory lap after one game? I thought 100% I'm doing that, yes. All right, our next player on the list, Hunter Tyson. <laughs> It's literally just words. Hunter Tyson this doesn't even sound like an NBA player. I'm going to guess he's on the It Spurs. actually sounds sounds a lot like an NBA player. I feel like that could be a creative player name. He's on the Denver Nuggets. He is this oh. year's entry on the list. Uh, the Nuggets. Are there no have... other Nuggets? Can we just? Yes. Okay. yes. There's only one player from each team. That's, that's a rule for this list every year. Oh, I didn't know that was a rule. Yeah. Uh, the Nuggets are really relying heavily on young players that they've drafted as part of their model of building a sustainable core, a sustainable bench around their, their core starting lineup that returns intact. Uh, Tyson, we'll see how much he actually plays. In the first game, he was not part of the rotation. Uh, Peyton Watson, who they drafted last year at UCLA, and Zeke Naji who's in his fourth season where they're backup bigs. But Tyson's a guy who uh, was not on my radar at all in the draft until uh, he played really well in the combine. He's out of Clemson, was a, a fifth-year senior, really slow-developing player, but a skilled big man, played really well for them in summer league. So we'll see if he gets a shot. All right, next up, another rookie, Brandon Pajemski. I feel like in the past these names used to be familiar to me, but now we are just like you don't watch as much college basketball as you used to. On the on the Rockets, Golden State Warriors. Hmm. Uh, someone else who was not in the rotation on opening night after he played pretty well for them in the preseason, so I thought he might have a chance to get rotation minutes, but we'll surely get an opportunity at some point. Uh, the Warriors, after kind of some slow developing projects the last couple of years, really put an emphasis on, you know, kind of skill and basketball feel with this pick. Pajemski, uh, I didn't put him in my stats projections until like March. And when he got in there, he immediately rose near the top of the list. I guess maybe maybe January or February. I Out didn't of see where? him play. Santa Clara. Oh, okay. He spent a year at, I believe, Indiana. He was in the Big Big Ten. He was definitely in Big Ten country. And then transferred to Santa Clara, oh Illinois, and didn't play a lot. And transferred to Santa Clara and had a terrific season there. Kind of a triple double threat. Really good rebounder from the backcourt. 
can play a little point guard, but really more of an off ball guy actually fits pretty well with Gary Payton the second. So hopefully those two will play together a lot. And and you're saying feel for, for basketball. It's like an anti James Wiseman pick or whatever. They're like, we drafted James Wiseman and that didn't work. Is he still on their team? He is not still on their team. They traded him in the four-team deal that landed them GP2 at last year's deadline. DNPCD for the Warriors or for the Detroit Pistons on opening night for James Thanks. Weissman. So there you go. Uh, next up on our list, Drew Smith. Somebody has to be on the Rockets, right? Actually, there are no Rockets on those lists. Really? I feel like the Rockets are kind of like the new Nuggets with these players. Uh, I think he's on the yeah, Raptors. Just none of their players were obscure enough this year. I mean, they drafted Amen Thompson and then Cam Whitmore, who was the MVP of Summer League. So Drew Smith is on the Miami Heat. Could be this year's Heat culture development story. Uh, was on a two-way contract to the, with them in training camp, but then got promoted to a full NBA contract. Looks like he's going to play a fair amount for them as a backup point guard, a, a spot where you know they certainly could use some depth. All right, next up, our first international player on this year's okay. list. Vasilye Misic. And he's on the Raptors. Oklahoma City Thunder. Ooh. Misic was drafted in, he was like a process Sam Hinkie draft pick with the Sixers. His rights got traded to Thunder many years ago, had never come to the NBA, was considered one of the best players not in the NBA, finally came over this year. Uh, another one where didn't was not in the rotation that I saw on opening night, at least in the first half, because they played Kaysen Wallace, the rookie out of a uh, lottery pick out of Kentucky, uh, as their backup point guard instead. But uh, Misich will certainly get an opportunity at some point this season. How how did Chet Holmgren look in his first NBA game as well? He looked pretty good. I I watched the first half of this one. Uh, Thunder ended up winning by 20 in Chicago. The Bulls had a players-only meeting after game one of the a Game one and a players-only meeting? Oh, my God. Wow. That has That's been the fastest a players-only meeting has ever happened. I think so. Chet somehow did not block a shot in this game. 11 points on 4-7 shooting in 25 minutes, 4 rebounds, 3 assists, plus 14. Coach? The Bulls coach? Billy Donovan. Wow. So he's been there for a while for the had a players-only meeting. Man, that... Sounds well, the vibes funny. are not great. No, no, they're not great. <laughs> no. I love, I love that they could be that bad after one game. All right, next up, someone you may have seen on opening night of the NBA season on national TV, Yuta Watanabe. On opening night, like I mean, I knew- two days ago. <laughs> yes. I've I I, I'm like yet. process of elimination. There's only We're three done. teams left. Actually, there's only two teams left. You said the Warriors already, right? We don't have a Laker. Uh, I'm gonna guess. I think he's actually on the Suns. He is on the Phoenix Suns, where he's reunited with Kevin Durant. They enjoyed terrific chemistry early last season in Brooklyn, and uh, Watanabe was one of Phoenix's many minimum signings this year a guy who blocks shots really well can make the corner three i think shot over 50 percent from corner threes perhaps last season so i uh, got a chance to play a, a nice role for phoenix off the bench okay all right our next international rookie and also we just love players who come to the nba uh very late after lengthy storied nba careers this player was the mvp of the euro league last year sasha vizinkov no Raptors either. Uh, 
Nope. Uh, no, there are not any Raptors. Wow, that's another team. I feel like those are the teams. The Raptors and the Rockets and the Nuggets are kind of like the teams that find these guys. Again, Grady Dick, just not obscure enough. Oh, yeah, I know. I would have. I, I, wait, Grady Dick was the one who wore the suit at the Correct. draft. Okay, right. I couldn't have told you what team drafted him, but I do remember that much about him. And I saw that and I was like, ah, you don't want to be that guy, Grady Dick. I'm so sorry, but. I guess I do remember his name. And if he hadn't worn the suit, I wouldn't. So exactly. That's something I don't even know. Pacers. The Sacramento Kings. There we go. He's stats friendly, friendly Sacramento Kings traded for his rights in the 2022 offseason for the a second Kings round. Kings are now stats friendly. Yeah. They hired Monty McNair from the Rockets. Okay. Yeah. Then they drafted Halliburton. They traded Halliburton, but they drafted Halliburton. Uh, yeah, but the, did they? How long? Did how many years was it between Marvin Bagley and? Oh, Marvin Bagley was not the current current front office. That was a that was a Vladi Divac special. But how many years was that between that and Halliburton? They had to be pretty close, right? Uh, I think two years. I don't know. That sounds so they, about right. Yeah. Then. Then they changed change <laughs> They were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I feel like losing out on Luca because you drafted Marvin Bagley would be worth changing the entire front office. Yeah, especially when you had a history of drafting guys from the the Balkans. And the, the one guy you really wanted to draft from the Balkans, you didn't draft. Not great. Uh, Vizenkov, like a terrific offensive player. A weak defender, but the Kings have chosen. Mike Brown has chosen to go with him despite his weaknesses. He's he's playing ahead of Trey Lyles, who was uh, a key part of the rotation in last year's playoffs. Had eight points in 16 minutes in his NBA debut tonight. The Kings made 19 three-pointers and blew out the Jazz by 16. Nice. Is there... If you could put a value on this, let's say that there's two parts of basketball. There's offense and defense, right? I don't. If you had to weigh those things, offense is a more important skill to have, right? At the team level, I think they're relatively equal, although I'd probably favor offense. At the individual level, I think offense is much more important because, you know, your your defensive, your team defense is more about the scheme and your interconnectedness than it is necessarily individual defensive ability, especially during the regular season in the playoffs where there's much more, you know, one-on-one play picking on specific matchups, then individual defense becomes kind of magnified. And we'll see if Vizenkov can hold up in that condition, those conditions, but uh, he should be a valuable regular season player. All right. Next up on the list, CD Suzoko. The Cavs. San Antonio Spurs, uh, where he is not the French rookie that everyone is paying attention to. Played for G League Unite, G League Unite, G League Ignite last season. Uh, played a fair bit about for them in the preseason. Uh, was not, as far as I could tell, on the active roster <laughs> in their season opener. So this is I was going to say, I kind of watched a lot of the Spurs game today. This is one where I may have gone too obscure. <laughs> I definitely, there was probably somebody who was way less obscure than this. And I was like, oh, that, that player or whatever. And I was like waiting to see their name on the back. And I was like, yep, nope, no idea who that guy is. (laughs) All right. Next up on the list, Keontae George. I definitely know Keontae George. I don't know what team he plays for. He plays for the Utah Jazz. He was my pick as the best rookie, the most effective rookie 
in the NBA Summer League this year, earning him an opportunity to play a fair bit during the regular season. He was actually drafted the second of three first-round picks for the Jazz this year, but uh, their top pick, Taylor Hendricks, is not in the rotation. Keontae George is played 19 minutes tonight, scored eight points on three of five shooting. I think there's a reasonable chance he emerges as their starting point guard by the end of the season. Nice. I'm looking to see who that Spurs player was that I hadn't heard of. It really could be almost any of them. <laughs> well, it couldn't be Doug McDermott. I'm confident it's not him. Did he play? Oh, he played a lot. But oh, okay, McPockets was getting minutes. Devin, is it Devin Vassell? <laughs> lots of lots of people were introduced to Devin Vassell tonight. Uh, Charles Bassey is probably the most likely one. Malachi Branham. Jeremy Sohan. I know, I know <laughs> no, you I'm, know Zach I, Collins. <laughs> I'm looking at the Spurs roster. And the name, it might be Sohan. I think that's Sohan. He's the only NBA player who is leaning into the Dennis Rodman comparisons by wearing number 10 for the Spurs and dyeing his hair blonde. I think and that was who it was, where I was like, it's that guy. He's uh, How many years he, has he been there? Two years? This is his second year? He is. Yeah, he was a lottery pick last year, but sadly, since I was going so obscure, was not on this list. He really should have been uh, last year. He's starting at point guard for them at six foot eight, which is an interesting experiment. All right, lastly, this year, going to France once again, we have Wemby's teammate on Metropolitan's '92 last year, also drafted in the lottery this year, Bilal Koulibaly. Oh. I remember when he got drafted, and I remember people were excited about him. I don't remember what team drafted him, but I, I think this might be the Pacers. Oh, he played against the Pacers in his NBA t- <sighs> debut. He plays for the Washington Wizards. Oh, uh, I kind of remember that. Played 23 minutes off the bench for the, the Wizards. Still raw offensively, had just three points, but three blocks, three assists. Uh, an interesting like three and D skill set. Didn't have any steals tonight, but had a monster steal rate in the preseason. Wizards fans are very hyped about Koulibaly because they've been drafting like these low upside late lottery picks for so long that you know just kind of drafting somebody who's got a chance to be anything is very exciting. <laughs> welcome to Wizards basketball. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, a, g- a guy who has a chance to be anything. It could be anything. He can even be a boat. <laughs> Could even be Blau Koulibaly. Uh, there really is just like, well, how is Denny uh, Avdija? Uh, he signed an extension with them. Denny Avdija uh, got the start. I thought they might start Koulibaly, but they went with Avdija in this one. Corey Kispert and Koulibaly came off the bench and kind of their fleet of interchangeable wings. I, I saw that that he signed a, an extension with them. Yeah. Four years, 44 million, I believe. All right. Well, any other questions for you as we preview the NBA for me? As you preview, as <laughs> yeah, for preview me. the NBA. If you want to go to me for more questions about the NBA, I definitely know what's going on. I do feel like maybe uh, I have to blame the NBA. This couldn't be my fault that I'm not aware of these players. I feel like NBA players have gotten to be more obscure over time. Like the stars or like the role players? Role players. I, I keep getting older and yeah. NBA players keep getting more obscure. They keep getting younger. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely true. Yeah. Uh, they keep getting a lot closer in age to my children than to me. Let's please not think about that. But I, I mean, I guess obviously, like what I was watching for when I was watching, I was watching Sports Center and just seeing highlights. It seemed like Brandon Miller played fairly well. 
Um, I, I'm always curious how rookies play because how much do these first couple of weeks matter, even a handful of games? Like, obviously, Wemby, that's not a question what he can do. But for players like Amon, Osar Thompson, Brandon Miller, players like that who are just a tier below, I mean, even Scoot. I didn't see almost anything about Scoot. I meant to pull up his stats. Had a pretty quiet night, finished with 11 points. I think most of those came in the fourth quarter, from what I could tell. Uh, flipped on that game after the end of the Spurs game. Uh, yeah, Brandon Miller off the bench, 25 minutes tonight, 13 points on five of nine shooting. This is kind of better, more efficient than uh, any of his performances in summer league, which is kind of funny during the regular season. But he was dealing with, I think at that, I think he had mono prior to summer league, and so had lost a lot of weight, and uh, now has had a full season off season to work out. I mean, you know, he was number two after Wemby in my projection, so. You know, I, I have kind of high expectations for him, even if I don't think he's necessarily going to have like a really exciting rookie season, maybe even as exciting as Scoots. Uh, how much does it mean? I mean, I think you learn something certainly pretty quickly about, you know, players' ability to adjust to the NBA. But we, you know, have seen Darius Garland, I think is my go-to example at this point, is I think he might have been last of all players in wins above replacement player for me, his rookie season with the Cavs. And then by year three was an all-star. So it's not definitive, but people like always want to say, oh, it either means everything or it means nothing. And the answer is obviously in between. It means something, but it's Darius Garland is definitely one of those players where like he's been brought up as an example every time a rookie is bad. It's almost right, like, which like, yes, he's the exception that proves the rule. You still don't want to be really bad as a, as a rookie. Like pe- people will have more hope for players for longer because Darius Garland exists. Correct. Or something, or they will talk themselves into it because Darius Garland exists, and they will be wrong a lot of those times. Uh, I do feel like this is the Portland team post Damian Lillard trade, etc. Uh, we d- discussed pretty clearly my feelings about the state, um, that I am the least connected to since I, I honestly can't even remember when. I think this is probably the Portland team that I'm the least connected to since the Sonics moved. And it's a part of, I think it's a byproduct of not having Brandon Roy, not having a competitive team necessarily, not having Damian Lillard and not having Nate McMillan also. There really is nothing about the Blazers that would be particularly interesting to people in Seattle aside from proximity Proximity, relatively, but like even that proximity is not that close. You know what I mean? You can't even watch them on local TV here unless you have the ultimate tier on Comcast. So I'm a little bit like, I don't feel like I have a team right now in the NBA. At the same time, another season has started. I think there's a lot of confidence around the Sonics returning. Uh, If you right now had to put a, a year as nothing's definitive, but if you had to put something in place as a, here's the year that I think that the Sonics might be back playing basketball what year would that be i think you know i've said all along that i think the timetable is probably going to be tied to when the new arena opens in las vegas now it's notable that uh, as far as i know they have not still broken ground on that new arena in las vegas stop making spheres las vegas make a (laughs) basketball arena we get it U2 doesn't need a place to play. We've seen U2 a lot of times. The sphere does seem amazing by all accounts. I mean, I've, I've obviously only seen it outside. Uh, that would lead me to think 2027 is 
a more likely year than 2026. Okay, so still still quite a few years, but it does feel like the, the moment that the team is announced, that's when the clock turns on. That's when, for me, I think I'm probably more likely to start paying attention to basketball overall. Uh, at least NBA basketball overall. It is interesting that uh, you know Portland has been reported to be the front runner for the other WNBA expansion spot in 2025, along with the Warriors getting in the WNBA expansion team. So we could have the return of the Seattle Portland Seattle Portland WNBA rivalry before we get the return of the Seattle Portland NBA rivalry. I think that'd be kind of fun. I've been telling you, I think the WNBA needs to expand at this point. I think it's time. Every, everyone agrees. Everyone yeah. agrees. So they did. They already have expanded. They they gave the team to the Warriors, and. Uh, We'll see what the timetable is for announcing that team in Portland, but that is the expectation. Is that Portland is going to be the next team? Correct. That they will be the 14th team. That's pretty cool. The WNBA should be able to get to like 20 teams at least. I would agree. Uh, Okay. Well, I also saw that the NBA returned to a traditional format for the All-Star game. That might like make players play harder for one year. And then it won't matter anymore, just like all the other changes they tried. But with the All Star Draft doing it live, it was it was not great. So I'm not surprised they went away from that. I'm a little more disappointed they gave up on the Elam ending. Really? Oh, I hate the Elam ending. You would. <laughs> I mean, you know, is as I've said, the NBA doesn't really need the Elam ending nearly as badly as college basketball but the NBA is willing to consider things that college basketball never will. Never is a long time, but is unlikely to. All right, should we get into the roundup? Absolutely, we should. The Seattle Kraken have finally scored some goals, multiple goals in the same game. They got the winning goal from Jordan Eberle in the final seconds of overtime Tuesday at Detroit, a 5-4 win that gave them two wins in their past three games with 13 goals in that span. Their overall shooting percentage is moving back toward the mean after they converted a league low 2.4% of their shots in the first four games. The Kraken are at 14% in the last three, leaving them 30th in the league overall. If you look at the advanced Corsi and Fenwick metrics, Kraken getting slightly more shots than their opponents in five-on-five situations, which should translate into better-than-average results overall. Bad news for the Kraken, winger Andre Burakovsky expected to miss six to eight weeks after surgery to repair an upper body injury suffered Saturday against the New York Rangers. Uh, the Kraken, after playing in Detroit on Tuesday, headed to the Southwest to face Carolina, Florida, and Tampa Bay on the remainder of their four-game road trip with Chris, Tuck and Taco Time co-host Chris Smith, in attendance at the Lightning game. Yeah, there we go. He, uh, he also, he's at the uh, Lawn Bowling National Championships this weekend. Yeah, we'll have and to toast has, for that next week. He has requested, not invited, uh, he has requested to come on to talk about his experience at the Lawn Bowling National Championships, okay. which I told I told him, okay. Sure. <laughs> so, be prepared. All right, Seattle Sounders shined on decision day, winning 2-0 at St. Louis SC and not not eating any St. Louis-style pizza to move up to the number two spot in the Western Conference with LAFC's draw against Vancouver. Albert Rushnak opened the scoring in the 23rd minute, followed by an own goal in the Sounders' favor in the 38th minute. It was pretty even in terms of shots, and St. Louis put five shots on goal, but Stefan Fry completed the clean sheet after VAR overturned a possible penalty in the 66th minute. 
That result means the Sounders will host FC Dallas in a best of three first round series starting Monday in Seattle with the return game on Saturday and the deciding game three, if necessary, the following Friday in Seattle. Uh, Dallas ranked sixth in the West with a plus four goal differential. Actually had a better home record than the Sounders at seven, three and seven, but won just four of their 17 road matches. Uh, Sounders had seven road wins by contrast, tied for third most in MLS after struggling on the road last season. Dallas hasn't lost since August, albeit with just two wins in that span. They've drawn seven of nine matches, including 1-1 at home versus the Sounders in early September. They are led by 22-year-old Colombian forward Jesus Ferreira, who tied for 14th in MLS with 12 goals, also had a team-high six assists. So as a reminder of this format, it's a best two out of three. There are no draws. If you're even after 90 minutes, immediate shootout. So potential for multiple shootouts within this series. There are going to be shootouts. So so if, if you were somebody who had a complaint about this, and I do think that people do, I think the MLS fans love to complain about MLS. And maybe that's because MLS does stupid things. <laughs> Both things can be true. Right? Is that is that an accurate description? Yes. That people really love to complain about things that uh, that MLS does. But also, this is a very strange format. And if you were to complain about this, the number one reason to complain about it, aside from it being basically unlike any way that soccer or football is decided anywhere else in the world, is uh, a three-game series is something that I've basically never heard of in soccer, right? Yeah. But if you were the underdog team, if you were FC Dallas here, oh yeah, you're playing for the nil-nil draw. You're playing. The plan the is just draw from the beginning and take it to penalties, right? Yeah. Look, there are a lot of Italian managers out there who love love the sound of this, but as far as interesting soccer goes, I'm not sure this is it. I agree. We'll see. I guess we'll see how it goes, and and maybe they will revisit it after the season. But uh, this is this is the format we're working with for now. Uh, Nico Ladero said on social media that Saturday was his last regular season game with the Sounders. He came off the bench in that one for the fifth time in his last 11 games after starting all of his previous games this season. Uh, Ladero's contract is up after the season. Sounders GM Craig Weibel told the Seattle Times the door isn't closed to Ladero's return, but he said his decision is final. Ladero, who joined the Sounders in 2016, has been part of all four MLS Cup final appearances and both wins. Is the Sounders' all-time leader in assists, tied with Clint Dempsey for third in goals across all competitions. His departure would open a designated player spot for the Sounders, who have Raul Ruiz Diaz under contract for 2024, and a club option on Albert Rushnak as their other two DPs. Okay. So could could be possibilities for the Sounders. And look, the Sounders went, go into this playoffs as the number two seed. Overall, is that in right? In the West, no. I mean, the They're East is the like West. completely dominant. Okay, so so they're basically the number two seed in the weaker conference or whatever they call it. Yeah, and I mean, LAFC is the three seed is probably the best team in the West. But if those two teams do advance to the conference semifinals, the Sounders would host that matchup. Do you think with enough teams that MLS may eventually go to just one table rather than breaking it down by conference? No, I mean, I think that's less likely because, you know, it makes it worse in terms of travel if you've got more teams. And and also, like, they've got too many teams to play the EPL style or the classic European style. You play every team home in a way. 
you know, if you did that, they kind of just keep making problems for themselves. If you did that in a 2019 league, you'd play 56 matches. <laughs> I mean, which could, they'd rather they'd rather play more table? leagues cup and less regular season matchups. Oh my god, all leagues cup, just make the whole <laughs> season out of the leagues cup. I think that I mean, look, we've talked about the MLS Liga MX merger. That's that's what it is. Couldn't you just have one table and then still just play the teams that you play though, and the matchups that you I mean, play? You could. Right? The WNBA sort of does that, where you play more games against the team in your conference, but they still use a, a single single table for the playoffs. I I mean, based on the way it is, like with with the NFL, it, it is such a clear schedule. The rules don't change in the NFL aside from continuing to add more and more and more playoff teams. But like, I guess they added a game. But like ultimately, the divisions are set. You play those teams twice. You play them at home. You play them on the road. You play the teams that match up with your. You play two other two other divisions, right? Like it is very set. It's a very clean, even league. MLS is not like that at all. It's a fucking mess every year. Right. So, so it's you just have like no idea when Leo Messi is coming to Seattle. It could just be one table with everybody because I I it doesn't exactly make sense to me. Having the Sounders be like, what are they, the tenth best team in MLS? But they're the number two seed. They're not, it's not that dramatic a difference, I don't think. They are. Maybe they are. Uh, they are number seven overall. I, and so I do hope with this designated player spot that there is a clear perspective about where this team is right now, and it's oh, not I just think there is. Yeah, it, it's not mission accomplished. Everybody else is getting better. The Sounders kind of had a head start on a lot of these teams, and. They're continuing to spend more, to be more aggressive, to build out these rosters, to build up the fan base. Again, I think I mentioned this. When I was in Nashville, the amount of excitement that people had around soccer in Nashville, it's way more brand new, right? Yeah. But like, and they don't have anywhere near as many sports, but that's a reality. Seattle is just getting more sports. Like they're not stopping coming. There are more and more and more, and Seattle's not getting that much bigger. So the Sounders kind of have to be pretty freaking good to continue to dominate that attention. And I do feel like they have faded quite a bit. Like the Kraken have pushed, I think the Kraken are ahead power rankings wise, just general attention in the city of Seattle. I think the Kraken are ahead ahead of the Sounders and like they, they kind of need to do something. They've been very good for a long time, but they haven't, they haven't had any truly exceptional players or anything like that. Anything that's going to pull you has been the exceptional player. Like, he's probably the greatest player in franchise history. Okay. Well, yeah. the greatest player in franchise history just said goodbye to the franchise. Which, so, like, it's time. Like, he, again, he isn't starting for a reason right now. You know, he's at that stage of his career. They need to get younger. They've got, they've developed some exciting in-house, exciting in-house players. Uh, Josh Atencio is one of the players who's starting ahead of him in defensive midfield. Leo Chu has really stepped up this season. So in that game against St. Louis, it was Jordan Morris up top, not Raul Ruiz Diaz uh, and Leo Chu on the wing. Like if that's kind of your, you know, your, your central shape. And, and one of the things we should say about the Sounders being the seventh best team, like if you look only at the games that Christian Roldan played much better than that as we've talked about in the past in terms of their points per match. So I think they have a legit shot to win the West and and be competitive to win MLS cup this year, especially because, you know, the MLS cup is format is bonkers. Uh, 
But if you add like another designated player piece to that, maybe more of a true striker, you know, a younger true striker with Raul Reed Diaz kind of showing his age as well this year, then, you know, that's, that's the next generation. That's Sounders 4.0. I don't know what, what iteration <laughs> we're on here. I agree that they probably have suffered the most from the Kraken's arrival on the scene. Well, the second most. UW men's basketball num- has suffered the most. Like they're just so far off the radar. I, I think that's true, and I'm excited that they're playing, uh, that we get to talk about them and get them on the rundown. I think there's something about college basketball in general more than just UW men's basketball. I think the sport, because of... Well, we've talked about just generally, look, if Seattle becomes more of a transplant town, then those transplants have no tie to the University of Washington. They're more likely to bandwagon the Kraken and the Sounders than they are you know, a, a team that that, uh, you know, a college team or an existing team, like even the Seahawks and the, or the Mariners. And, you know, so I think a lot of those people that came and became Sounders fans 10 years ago now are coming and becoming Kraken fans. I think I think that is totally true. But there's also like, has UW basketball had teams like there was a fan base when they were good, you know, like when they were players that you could cheer for DeJounte Marine players like that it's a sellout almost every game. Like it was a it was a big deal back when we had season tickets. Yeah, but the team hasn't been good for a long time. Yeah, no, they haven't, yeah. and and they haven't like. I mean, again, I think I think what UW basketball... football, what we're seeing this year, the I believe it's the three highest attendances in the current Huskies game, or three of the four, I think maybe other than the USC game in 2016, are all this season. Like, if you put a really good team out there, they'll overcome that transplant effect. I I think it's both the really good team, but it's also it's the really good team. That is basically the same as the team last year. There is there is a yeah. a history built up. Like, look, UW got lucky that Michael Penix decided to stay, and then every, basically everybody decided to stay, right? Like the fact that all all of those players decided to run it back. That but like if they had happened. been undefeated last season, even though it was Penix's first year and Kevin DeBoer's first year, I think people still would have come. No, for sure. But like you do build up. Sometimes relationships with athletes takes time, and there it is more than just. Like having a relationship with a team and becoming a fan of that team, ultimately, like people will say that it's laundry or whatever. Like you have to care about the players in a way. You have to have seen them. You have to have seen them done well. You have to have an emotional attachment to them. And if you pop up and you're like, who the fuck is this every single year? I need to learn who these guys are. It Who's is Paul really... McKay. We'll, we'll have next week our 10 players to watch from United Mids Basketball. It's all William Breitenbach, weirdly. <laughs> Wilhelm, Wilhelm, Wilhelm. There you go. See, I don't. I love him, and I don't even know his name. <laughs> they were, all, they were all Wilhelm Breidenbach. Uh, <laughs> it was a trick, <laughs> but like the that there is a reality to that. That when UW has UW basketball has had good players, just like every college basketball team. If you have a good player, they are gone the next year, and it's been a while since the Quincy Pondexter era. Or whatever, where you can actually like. I mean, even more recently, like the Matisse Thibault, uh, David Crisp, the Dominic Green. Those guys were all here for four years. Yeah. Were all starters on that team that went to the NCAA tournament, along with Joe and Noel, who was here two years. I I don't like. Oh, Noah Dickerson! Did I forget Noah Dickerson? 
I know I love Noah Dickinson. There are players who play at UW that I don't even feel that strongly about in the NBA because it's like you played here for a year or whatever. I don't mean to sound like an old man complaining, but this is just a reality of the situation is that college I mean, basketball like, kind of fucking sucks. We don't have enough players in the NBA anymore to be precious about this. You got to accept Isaiah even, Stewart and Jaden McDaniels. Jaden McDaniels. I, oh, I love Jaden. Dan- a toast Jayden. to his uh, five-year $136 million extension. <laughs> Congrats on the money. Um, uh, I like Jaden McDaniels, but like, you understand what I'm saying. I do, yeah. It's just college basketball is kind of fucking trash, and I think like... They need to figure it out. There's a lot that needs to be done with the NCAA and NCAA sports in general. But again, it's a good thing that players have the flexibility to transfer where they want. I I think the the way that this is to be figured out is um, you give players contracts and then you allow those players to be traded to other teams or whatever. Literally, it's all been they figured out. Trades. You know what I mean? Like, it's done. The whole fucking system has been figured out by somebody else. And that's that's what's going to happen because if you're talking about NIL money and you're paying somebody a huge, if you were a booster and you're paying a, a player a huge chunk of money to come to a school, let's say it's a quarterback or whatever, they sit for a year and they transfer. All of a sudden, you're gonna be like, "Damn, where did my money go?" And it's gonna literally, this is going to turn into contracts. We are going to fuck around and invent contracts in college. I think that is quite possible. So, so anyways, the Sounders. <laughs> well, we're still talking about them. <laughs> No, that no, was no, the no. most off topic. Anyway, top five Halloween candies. <laughs> <laughs> we've, done, we've done it before. We can pull it from the archives. Oil Rain, as he said at the top, a thrilling win last Friday in Megan Rapino's last match ever in Seattle. This game was scoreless into the 87th minute when Veronica Latsko headed home across from Phoebe McLernan from for the game's only goal. The rain did not allow Angel City FC a single shot on goal putting five on frame themselves. Rapino was subbed off in stoppage time to get a standing ovation from the crowd. Not nearly as big as the 30,000 plus that were at her final regular season home game, but uh, still a solid crowd uh, for this one. Rose Lavelle came out in the 64th minute, her first NWSL appearance since September 3rd. So exciting to see her working back into full health. Uh, the playoffs will now pause this weekend for the international break before the rain head mm. to on November 5th to take on, wait for it, the oh, hated God. rival, San Diego Wave. The goddamn Wave. That's Snapdragon Stadium. The thing about the sport of, I really, MLS and uh, NWSL is just when you get into it, similar to, I think the NFL does this too, right? Just like a long pause <laughs> to go do something else. You get excited about it and you're like, fuck it, let's just go do something else for a couple of weeks here. It's the two, the two week break between the uh, championship games and the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's honestly I mean, it's different because the players aren't like flying out of the country to go play for their international team. Yeah. That would be kind of wild. This is so bonkers. Yeah, as it turns like, out, hey, that international break that exists because other sports in the world. I don't know if you're aware of this. They don't have playoffs. Other leagues, other than obviously the yeah. Uh, the continental leagues, which we're going to set up long pauses. We're just going to fuck around and invent not having playoffs right here. <laughs> we're happy to do it. Uh, 
you mentioned obviously the the Utah men's basketball. Their exhibition game is coming up Sunday versus St. Martin's. The women host Seattle Pacific in their exhibition game on Monday. So next week we will have actual results to talk about and a season to preview. I mean, I can't believe that we are. We're, uh, college basketball always starts a little bit sooner than you think it's gonna, and uh, it also depends if the team tours China or whatever to get in a game early. But like. Uh, again, they toured Paris in, in Spain this year. This year, but I think in the past they toured China, didn't they? Probably, perhaps at some point. I don't know. Uh, this this game against St. Martin's, they, it's you always love to play St. Martin's at the beginning, right? And sometimes these games are a, a lot bit closer than you want. You just oh, lost yeah. this game before, right? I don't think they have lost this game in recent memory. Okay. But, but there but have this, been some close ones. Yeah, this one it's it's like it's behind closed doors or whatever, but people know what the score is. No, no, the, there's a closed door scrimmage, but these games are open to the public. This is open to the public. They just don't yes. put the score up on the scoreboard, right? This is like me coaching. No, like, uh, they, or something. they put the score up there. They reset the it score just, every quarter. I get it, and you have to try to memorize what the score was before. It, it just doesn't count for towards the standings. <laughs> That's all. Anyway, well, the hope is that this one isn't closer than we want it to be. All right, let's talk about the Seahawks coming off a 20 Wow, we're giving the Huskies the hammer again? They're still undefeated. I know it was, you know, in disappointing offensive like his, performance. Historically speaking, I feel like the Seahawks, I'm a little shocked by this. I was prepared I, to talk to Seahawks you, last. I think people are more hyped about the Huskies right now. We didn't get any emails about ambiguous Midwestern pizza for the first time in a while or Husky football, but I, my sense is people are still more hyped about the Huskies. I mean, it, it who again uh, are undefeated ranked number five in the country. Here's the thing. I Husky football, like when I was walking into the Seahawks game and, and I think we could use this to segue to the Seahawks, but when I was going into the Seahawks game on Sunday, Chris and I were talking and obviously had both been at the game, the previous, both of the games, the last two weeks, right? We had expended so much emotional and literal physical energy between those two Husky games before going to the Seahawks game that you're, you end up being a little bit drained by it in a way that you kind of can't spend that same kind of physical and emotional energy on a Seahawks game against the Arizona Cardinals that you did that we didn't expect to spend against Arizona State, which we'll talk about. But by the end of that game, it was very, very stressful. You have the Oregon game, which is like, one of the most stressful sporting events that I've ever witnessed, right? Exciting and stressful. And yeah. then to have the Arizona State game the week after that, where you're going into this being like, we're just chilling. We are, we're taking a week off. How early and, are we going to be able to leave? And then all of a sudden to have to rely on an amazing Mish Powell pick six, by the way. But to have gone through all that late into the night, right? We're getting home at like 1 a.m. or whatever. And then all of a sudden turn around the next morning and you're like, I guess I'm cheering against Josh Dobbs now. It just kind of doesn't feel the same. But, but this weekend to me is the first Seahawks game. It gets a little bit muted because they're probably playing the worst quarterback in the NFL at the moment. But Oh, absolutely. Oh, this weekend? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But... This, to me, is the first time that I feel like the Seahawks 
are playing a truly interesting game, and the Seahawks team has a little bit of an identity. So we're getting into it where we understand, and I and I forget that this kind of happens every year, where you don't really necessarily understand what the team is, good or bad, until about this point of the year, and you're like, okay, like the stakes are starting to matter. We know who the other good teams are around the NFL. There's a little bit of history at this point. It's not just, I don't know, maybe the Bengals are good. Maybe they're not, right? Which I feel like it has been up to this point. Same with the Lions, right? We still don't know whether the Bengals are any good. And and there's another reality that the Seahawks have played such an easy schedule so far that it's almost been hard to kind of like get worked up about any of these games. We will see because of the quarterback situation for the Browns. But when you look at it DVOA-wise, I think the Seahawks are ninth and the Browns are 11th. These are two teams who are very good teams who are very much in the playoff mix. Probably playoff likely to make the playoffs, both of the teams. And that's why this one all of a sudden is like, I'm excited for this Seahawks game. I'm thinking about the Seahawks game more than I'm thinking about the Husky game by actually a significant margin. I think that's probably fair this weekend. Uh, I I feel like we should talk a little bit more about last week's game because to me it was interesting in that it seemed like the most legion of boom era Seahawks game that the Seahawks have played since the Russell Wilson trade. Like the I mean, offense that's, wasn't that's not that long, but yes, sure. What are, we, like, what are we calling the legion of boom era though? Every time until Russell Wilson was traded, no. Or we're no. talking like. Way back, they, they the played actual some of these of games. Era. Yeah, they played some of these games after the Legion of Boom uh, disbanded, but they usually lost them because the defense wasn't as good then. Yes, and what I'm saying is, it wasn't necessarily like the, oh my god, the offense has gone three and out five consecutive times to start the game. Yeah, uh, but it was you know the offense not scoring that many points. And it just kind of not mattering that much because of the fact that the defense so completely dominated and cleaned up so many messes in terms of turnovers and not allowing points. And like defense might be good. Oh yeah. No, I don't I don't think there's they are underrated statistically right now, the Seahawks defense. I, I think is how I describe them. And I think that by the end of the season, they're gonna look different statistically than they do right now. It took a second to get everybody back. But you see that secondary right now? It's me. And, and it is, I I was telling you, Devin Witherspoon isn't just my favorite current Seahawk. Devin Witherspoon is my favorite. I'm, I'm trying to decide whether this is athlete or football player. <laughs> I have never once cared about a football player as much as I care about Devin Witherspoon right this second. I know that's not true. Who was previously like, your favorite athlete of all time? I don't know. Favorite at like because mine is pretty clearly Sean Kemp. Unless it's Brandon Roy. Yeah, Brandon Roy was pretty fun to watch play. But like when I think about the Seahawks game on Sunday, I'm not thinking about the quarterback. I'm not thinking about the rookie wide receiver. I'm not thinking about DK Metcalf. I'm not thinking about Bobby Wagner. Every single play by the rookie wide receiver. You mean Jake Bova? Yeah, yeah. Either the rookie wide the rookie wide receivers. But like every single play, I I actually look forward to the Seahawks being on defense because I'm like, Devin Witherspoon is going to make some shit happen. I'm like, this team is mean. They hit. This is the kind of defense that is so much fun to watch right now. And they get to play PJ Walker this weekend. So (laughs) 
I, I'm that's what I'm excited about. The jerseys, everything about it. Things came together. They coalesced nicely. I think it's actually nice for the Seahawks that the Huskies have an easier game on Saturday this weekend when it is like it is Seahawks time now for a second yeah, for a easy, week. Easier game last week too. But last week both both teams were playing one in five teams from the Phoenix area. So but you say that so like the the turnovers that happen, they put the defense into very bad positions. Obviously, there's the missed field goal or whatever. Like the defense got a little bit lucky along the way. But even then, there were moments that they could have had huge plays. People talked about this to death. It, at the time, I'm like, damn, Witherspoon got robbed, robbed of two huge plays. That but there's a reality that they don't necessarily need to show up in the stat book for them to have happened. And people know that those plays happened. They saw them. But we've talked about that a ton. They didn't necessarily play that clean of a game and still only gave it, was it seven points? Was it 10 that Arizona got to? They scored 10, yes. So they, they scored 10 points when the defense didn't play necessarily that amazing of a game, right? Like the pressure was there, but the pressure wasn't there until the very, very end. The secondary was pretty good, but still made some mistakes, right? The holding that, that Rick Woolen had. And this defense can get so much better than they were last week. And I think that's what's exciting about it because you can see the elements coming together. That's what makes us feel like 2012 era or something like that, 2011 era, where you're like, they haven't quite put it together. They yeah, haven't. 2011 is maybe the right right uh, comparison because there's there's not the... The offense isn't doesn't have that upside of 2012. I am not convinced of that for what it's worth, but okay. When um, they were number one in DVOA, you're you're not convinced that they can be that they I can't be they, number one in DVOA. Uh, offensively? They were number one offensively. I mean, I don't know about post, you know, alterations. Oh, we don't accept those. <laughs> they are what they are. Do you want me to dig out my 2013 football almanac? <laughs> yeah. It's the only way we'll know. Uh, I'm not going to be the number one offense. I do think that this team, I think it is within a reasonable possibility that this Seahawks team could be, I wouldn't be shocked if at some point they were number one in DVOA. Yes, but I mean, number one in offensive DVOA, which I think they were. I think it's unlikely. They were in 2012, but you know, at some point in that run. Uh, but, but if every single week, it's just like the defense right now is underrated statistically. So I think two things I want to talk about from last Sunday's game. Number one, I told you this afterwards. It feels like the Seahawks are like constantly exploring different ways of having non-sustainable things go against them. Mm -hmm. So for a long period of time, it was third downs. Last week, third downs were awesome. Yeah. Uh, in the Cincinnati game in particular, but also last week to a degree, it was red zone offense. And then last week, specifically against Arizona, it was turnovers, having you know three of those, forcing none, having a minus three turnover differential. That's not Pete Carroll football. And yet, none of it has mattered because they've like, or I mean, it didn't matter against Cincinnati. It didn't matter last week at all because they were just so dominant in terms of overall yards per play. So it feels like eventually if they get all of the less sustainable things, the more variable things on their side for one week, that could really look amazing, granting that the schedule has not been very hard and will be much more difficult going forward. The other thing I wanted to note was DK Metcalf sat out this game, the first game he's missed in his career. Whoa, really? Yeah. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah. That's kind of awesome. Pete Carroll, like, 
kind of a weird thing after the game, like to like emphasize how hurt he was and you know how how badly he wanted to play and like you know the DK Metcalf is seriously hurt t-shirt is it raising a lot of questions answered by the shirt <laughs> but anyways didn't really miss him during the game not not a knock on DK Metcalf at all just a statement of how much Jackson Smith and Jigba had the best game of his career Jake Bobo had the biggest overall game of his career an amazing touchdown catch and like that's what's so exciting because we've talked about this ad nauseum with Ben Baldwin like the Seahawks you know had an amazing receiving core with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf but when one of those two guys was banged up, all of a sudden it got really dicey in years past. And now you have the ability to withstand that. And that's exciting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think this is the first time the draft. I, if you could just every year trade Russell Wilson for two first round draft picks <laughs> that are pretty good draft picks. I really think you could get a team out of it. I, I guess I endorse it as well. That's what I'm saying because they did the thing where they got, they got both. And if they had to make a choice, this franchise had to make a choice. They blew a lot of these picks too, not not necessarily on the players. Literally, they traded the picks for a long time. And so to come back from not that long ago, the Jamal Adams trade, which awesomely is paying dividends on the field with Jamal Adams right now, but like to have there, come back from that. There was another pick that trade they made. We'll talk about that player in a second where they got some extra draft picks. And one of those turned out to be DK Metcalf after they traded down up and... Yes. No, I mean, that was that was a huge trade. That I was thinking about that, too, where I was like, if you could just do that all the time. Although, he had some good years in Kansas City. Anyway. Uh, both teams happy with that trade. But they got to have both of the things. And the Seahawks, have, I mean, when was the last time they drafted a wide receiver in the first round, right? It's Corn Robinson. Is that how far back we're going? Uh, I guess that is possible. Was that the last time? Yeah, maybe so. So it's been a long time since they've drafted a player at, at that place like Jackson Smith and Jigba. And it's not surprising that they haven't found the third guy alongside DK and Tyler Met and, and Tyler Lockett because they haven't looked that hard, right? I mean, they well, did invest a second round pick in D. Eskridge, who uh, but, but, is eligible to return from his personal conduct if, suspension this week. If you sort of think of those, it's like they definitely hit on both Tyler and DK, right? As in not the necessarily round, correct in the second round. And you're like, if you draft three receivers in the second round and two of them are very good starting receivers, you uh, are lucky. Like it was in the third round. Paul Richardson was the other second round pick. P. Rich, yes. But you are lucky overall. So it's like, I feel like it kind of ends up as a wash as far as. And Golden Tate is another second round, second round pick. We're getting pretty far back now. Um, but like they, they haven't necessarily invested that much into that position. And, you know, they let Paul Richardson go, right? Like they made some decisions to not by bringing in Jackson Smith and Jigba and being able to go get the player in the secondary. The Pete Carroll, John Schneider tandem was able to do all of the things that they wanted. So it's not surprising that it's paying dividends, but then also you have a little bit of luck in Jake Bobo, which again, they were lucky with Lockett. They were luck lucky with Metcalf those players being as good as they are, but they haven't necessarily had a ton of luck and just going out and finding a guy like that at a position, I mean, again, at, a since Doug position at a premium position. Doug Baldwin is a long time ago. I'm talking about rebuilding the team post the 2012. Sure. Like it, it, they were probably slightly unlucky 
they weren't taking as many shots because of the fewer draft picks, but they were also slightly unlucky with players for a period of time. And so to have all of those things happen at once, it makes it a little bit easier to, to even highlight what Bobo can do because of the rest of the roster. And even when you look back a year and say they, they drafted the offensive lineman two years ago, right? Abe Lucas isn't playing right now, but like they were able to use a high draft pick on Charles Cross to go get the left tackle. Like they aren't needing to play catch up in all of these other positions. So they're able to go out and get things at wide receiver to make the offense better overall. That's what happens when you have draft picks. Yeah, I, I endorse it. Uh, DK was a full participant in practice on Wednesday. Uh, the Seahawks did on Sunday lose Chilin Nuosu, who is set to undergo season-ending pectoral surgery. By multiple reports, the Seahawks are bringing back Frank Clark, who played for the team from 2015 through 18 before being traded to Kansas City in that aforementioned trade while on the franchise tag. Clark made three Pro Bowls in his four years with the Chiefs, won a pair of Super Bowls, recording 10 and a half sacks in his 12 playoff games before being released in March to avoid a monster cap hit after a contract restructuring. Clark then signed a one-year $5.5 million deal with the Broncos in June, but played just two games in Denver before restructuring his contract and subsequently being released after no trade for him materialized. Uh, Clark missed two games last season due to a violation of the NFL's personal conduct policy stemming from a 2021 arrest on weapons charges. You'll recall that uh, Clark eventually pleaded guilty to two reduced charges of misdemeanor possession of an assault weapon. You'll recall the Seahawks drafted him following a 2014 arrest on domestic violence charges, which resulted in Clark's dismissal from the Michigan football team and a guilty plea to a disorderly conduct. So it's interesting. The like all the scuttle online was that Clark was going to resign with the Chiefs after he was waived by Denver. Instead, it's a different reunion coming back to the Seahawks because of the Nuoso injury. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such an obvious spot and role for him to fill. And I think when you saw the Achena and love Achena Nuoso, right? Like one of the best signings that, especially defensively, that this team has had in a long time. You're well but soon, certainly. You, you saw that happen, and it was like, they don't need one more pass rusher, but it definitely couldn't hurt. We've they, given. I think they do, yes. I mean, Daryl Taylor's just not an every-down player necessarily, so I think that's the role that Frank Clark fills, is he's going to be you know, a first and second down guy, and you know, we'll see what they do on third down. But, but they want to have... I, I was thinking about how much like even watching them intro the team about how back to front the the defense is. And that's what definitely reminds you of the Legion of Boom era where like all of the biggest, it's Bobby Wagner and then everybody else in the secondary is who you're most excited about, who is who you feel like is most notable. And you can kind of make those players look even better, but then also Boye Mafe and his emergence this year, he's looked pretty freaking good. He's number one now in ESPN's pass rush win rate among edge players. Gerald Taylor is number 19 in that stat, although nobody in the top 20 is double teamed at lower rates than those two, which I think speaks to them taking advantage of playing opposite which I knew also. Are anything more to say about these throwback uniforms? I mean, they're the they're beautiful. The, I I they're the only thing that I love as much as Devin Witherspoon. <laughs> Are the throwback uniforms? It, it is funny because if you could buy a throwback uniform of Devin Witherspoon, how much wow. you would love it? Wow! Uh, 
I, it kind of doesn't make sense to me why we don't just have them be the uniforms. If we all agree that they're the best uniforms, I don't know why they're not just the uniforms. I'm sorry, Mr. Or is, oh, is it a scarcity, scarcity is, is it so a scarcity issue? You can't possibly have voodoo done in Seattle. Like, it's you just don't a better the... color. It is a better color of blue, though. Uh, I agree it's a better color of blue. I think you could you could do something more with that color of blue. Like I would endorse like what the Sonics uniforms were in the last stint, where it was inspired <laughs> by the just red for some reason maroon no no after that you when love that howard, one <laughs> when howard schultz like to his credit a lot of other things happen but the <laughs> uniforms were pretty awesome and the logo be going back to green and gold but it wasn't they didn't just go in straight back to the 90s early 90s uniforms they did a modern remix of it okay so that's what we're doing for, yeah. for the we're going back to the to the color right just away like, from the the Mariners should keep the current logo, but they should go to the blue and yellow because not every team in this fucking city should have blue and green as their colors. I'm that's okay with much that. Well, that's the old school Mariners, right? That's like Pilots era. No, it's like Mariners. I mean, yes, it's Pilots era, but also Mariners 77 through 92. Yeah, let's do it. Let's bring it all back. Yeah. Okay. Bring back all the what, unsuccessful What color w- would you describe? But it doesn't, the jerseys don't change the thing. Would you describe it as royal blue? What are the, what color? I, uh, it's not quite a powder blue, but it's closer to that. I don't know. I don't, is there an official name for that color? Seahawks retro jersey color. Let me see here. I feel like the color might just be blue. Royal blue, according to... Well, that's what I said. So there you go. Royal blue. But but at the same time, I do kind of feel like the color of the the throwbacks is just blue. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Cleveland. Who, as you alluded to, will start P.J. Walker at quarterback in place of Deshaun Watson, who returned last Sunday after sitting out three weeks in two games, but left in the first quarter after throwing an interception and having a second overturned by replay review on his last throw, went through concussion protocol, was cleared, but an MRI Monday showed no additional damage to his shoulder, but the report from Tom Pelissero of NFL Network was that Watson was still working to rebuild strength in his arm. According to my ESPN colleague, Adam Schefter, Watson has a strain of the subscapularis in his rotator cuff, an injury that typically has a timetable of four to six weeks for baseball pitchers. Cleveland started 2-1 and one with Watson at quarterback, then was blown out 28-3 by the Ravens at home with fifth-round pick Dorian Thompson-Robinson getting the start. Just not the same without Jake Bobo to throw to. Uh, P.J. Walker was promoted from... <laughs> You have something to say on that one. And Charbonnet. True. Uh, P.J. Walker was, who missed last week's game as well. P.J. Walker was promoted from the practice squad to start against San Francisco after the bye in a 19-17 win, then replaced Watson last week and led a comeback from a 14-7 deficit as the Browns started scored a season-high 39 points in their one-point win, win at Indianapolis. Walker was signed to the active roster on Wednesday ahead of his start. Statistically, Watson has still clearly been the most effective Browns quarterback. He has thrown three picks in 107 attempts, 
Walker has that same number in 66. DTR has the same number in 36 attempts. Watson's completing 62% of his passes for 6.4 yards per attempt. However, numbers worse than departed Jacoby Brissett managed at the start of the first 11 weeks last year when he completed 64% of his passes for 7.1 yards per attempt. Watson ranks 27th in EPA plus CPOA composite among quarterbacks who have played at least 60 plays. But Walker is last of this group, 37th overall in both EPA and CPA, OE, and obviously overall. Walker has completed just 50% of his passes for 5.6 yards per attempt, has yet to throw for a touchdown in two games. And with him starting, the line went from Seahawks minus one and a half on Saturday, which would imply that Cleveland is better on a neutral field, to now Seahawks minus three and a half. Yeah, and this, this is one that I actually think should probably even be more than that. I mean, P.J. Walker is kind of off the charts as far as how he has performed so far in Cleveland. And that that's the thing that was, you know, I thought there was a conversation heading into this week of Deshaun Watson has been bad, right? Like this hasn't been that Deshaun, there's a huge difference. Ranking wise, there isn't a huge difference between these. Deshaun Watson has been bad. P.J. Walker has been really bad. And and I think that's that's where that three and a half line doesn't feel like enough. Like this could well, ultimately be We'll talk some, about why it's closer than that. This could be and, and I get it, their defense in general, but with the way that the Seahawks offense or defense has been playing and PJ Walker, a combination of those two things, I think no matter the Browns defense has to be very, very, very good. And right now, like if you look at it, offense, defense, defense, I mean, they offense, were. They, et cetera. They beat the 49ers with PJ Walker starting at quarterback, which I mean, it doesn't mean quite as much as it did going into that game when they were undefeated. There was Walker also was, quite a bit of luck there as well. Walker was also a somewhat more effective last season when he started for the Panthers, kind of the bulk of his work. He completed 59% of his passes, uh, three interceptions and 106 attempts, 6.9 yards per attempt. So those are like, you know, marginal starting quarterback stats as opposed to this season when it's not starting quarterback caliber. And, and I do think that this Seahawks defense with where they are at right now, the secondary going against PJ Walker, Jerome Ford is hurt, right? Like this is a very banged up Browns team in general. They are going to have an extraordinarily difficult time scoring in this game, it, depending on the situations or whatever, even given the situations, if there are turnovers, et cetera, as long as it's not the Browns scoring on defense, I think it is going to be very difficult for the Browns to get past 18 points, something like that, like being very generous. Yeah, I mean, they scored 19 against the 49ers in that win. I They somehow scored a lot of points against the Colts. I don't quite understand it. Uh, part of it is they had a bunch of long touchdown runs, including a 69-yarder from Jerome Ford before that second-year fifth-round pick suffered a high ankle sprain last week. Uh, he had become the go-to back after Nick Chubb suffered season-ending injuries to his MCL and meniscus in week two. That leaves Kareem Hunt, who was unsigned before returning to the team after the Chubb injury, as the primary running back. He's averaging just 3.2 yards per carry after 3.8 last year, but has been really effective in short yardage situations, including as a Wildcat QB with a 53% success rate on his runs, far better than Ford's 35%. Pierce Strong also got a career high eight carries last week. He's the uh, other option going into this one. And and have you looked at the yards per play in that game, Colts versus Browns? I know that 
by the stats, it was very unusual that Cleveland won that game. I mean, the Colts gained 456 yards in the game, and they averaged 6.8 yards per play, and the Browns averaged 4.4 yards per play. Like, they won the game, but this was not a good performance by the Cleveland Browns. It was almost entirely the turnovers. They forced four of them. The Colts, the Colts, yeah, they did did lose three fumbles. I fumbles in particular is something that is so luck based that I look, maybe the Seahawks will lose three fumbles as well or whatever, but to count on an offense that is gaining that few yards per play, I would it was not something that I would think is likely. A random issue for the Browns, by the way. They've fumbled 12 times, second most per game behind Jacksonville, and have lost five of them. Uh, if we look at their receivers, Amari Cooper, by far their most dangerous threat. He's catching just 51% of his targets, but for 6.2, 16.2 yards per reception, which ranks 11th in the NFL, so 8.3 yards per target. Nobody else above David Njoku's 7.0. Elijah Moore has a team-high 25 catches, one more than Cooper and Njoku, but for just 5.3 yards per target, a lot of short stuff. And old friend Marquise Goodwin has just three catches thus far for 10 yards. Okay, so tell us about that Browns defense. Yeah, it's a shame the offense is so bad because the defense has been awesome. They're That's number not, one in DVOA. Shame. This is not a team that we should be cheering for. A fair. It's but it's not the defense's fault. They did they did sure, decide fine. to individual pay defensive Watson players so we do not hold accountable. The Browns is a front office and an organization. Eh. All fair. Uh number one in DVOA and opponent EPA per play, as well as EPA on passing plays. They're fourth in opponent EPA on rushing plays. It's a core of six drafted starters, all taken within the first round, supplemented by a remade defensive line this year with the additions of Zedaria Smith, Delvin Tomlinson, and our old friend Shelby Harris under first-year defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz. Uh, Bill Barnwell ranked the NFL's top defenses this year, had Cleveland number one based on the fact that they're allowing 18.1 yards per drive, six fewer than any other defense, and opponents are getting a first down on 57.5% of drives, which was the lowest in the entire 2000s all the way back to 2000, by seven percentage points. Uh, new member of the Cleveland Cavaliers ownership group, Miles Garrett, third in the NFL with seven and a half sacks. They lead the league overall in both sack rate and QB knockdown rate, the latter per sport radar tracking. One high weakness that Barnwell highlighted that the Colts exploited last week, they are last in the NFL in yards allowed after the catch which is interesting. Maybe this is the time to unleash Jackson Smith and Jigba or Diaz um, catching passes at the line of scrimmage. I, whether Diaz Gritch plays this week remains to be seen. He's coming back from that knee injury that sidelined him in preseason. So it's been a long period of time since he's practiced. Uh, and Miles Garrett, I think now the favorite for defensive player of the year, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and and this is one of those games where you talked about last week looking like an old school Seahawks win. This is one that could look a little bit more like that. I think that Pete Carroll is going to want to try to run the ball first. He does not want this offensive line, which was very, very banged up. Um, still statistically, I think, ranked pretty well run blocking overall throughout the year. We're not good last week against Arizona with those three uh, replacement offensive linemen. Pass blocking wise, though, has not been particularly strong. And I think that that's the situation where you can lose the game on offense. And that is something that Pete Carroll is going to do everything he humanly can to avoid. Yeah, tough to say who's going to start on the offensive line this week. It sounds like Jason Peters is going to be available. I think all we can say thus far is that Abe Lucas will not start. Charles Cross will start. 
Everything else is TBD. <laughs> In between, there's the doors. The that that is to be the the piece that is by far the scariest about this game. It is Miles Garrett going against this offensive line or the Seahawks offensive line, and if that translates to turnovers and the way that it did last week for the Colts, they ended up losing that game because of it, despite the fact that they played significantly better than the Browns. Seahawks are a better team than the Colts are right now in basically every single aspect of the game. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the issue. Getting Zach Charbonnet back, he was one player who I really felt, look, the running backs don't matter. Crowd could say whatever they want. I felt like Ken, Ken Walker did not have a you, good game. You can address week. me by name. The Seahawks needed Zach Charbonnet in that game. They needed the change of pace of Charbonnet and getting him back because they clearly are not going to run DJ Dallas as a traditional running back in the same way that they feel comfortable doing that with Charbonnet, the physicality that he has. There were some plays where it's like they just needed somebody to go pick up a few yards, and that's just not what Ken Walker does, right? So th- that to me is ob- obviously it's it's about Miles Garrett, right? It is the entire Seahawks team, and it is Miles Garrett and this Browns defense. Can they do enough to to disrupt the Seahawks, to to muck things up, commit, have them commit turnovers or whatever? It is much easier to see that the team with the better offense and pretty good defense is going to win this game against one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. Miles Garrett is a pretty big question mark, and the Browns' defense in general is a pretty big question mark. So if they lose, that is how it's going to happen. I just don't know if I necessarily see that happening. And I think the Seahawks might win another ugly one in the way that they won against Arizona last week. I mean, this is a game where Geno Smith has to take care of the ball. Pete Carroll said on Monday that Jake Bobo did not do enough to help Geno Smith on the interception that he threw on Sunday. Uh, he also kind of got away with one that was dropped in that game. I would like to see him maybe be a little more conservative. I think people have been overly critical of Geno Smith's performance overall, but you know this is one where you know make the simple play. Percentage chance of victory? I think it's pretty high. I think it's like a seventy-eight percent chance, maybe seventy. Eight? Oh boy, I, I'm at like 65. I, I'm just being honest with you. PJ Walker is the starting quarterback for the Browns. Yeah, he was the starting quarterback for the Browns when they beat the San Francisco 49ers. It doesn't matter. This is the same shit that people were it talking about. It actually does matter. Yeah, because they did it with the tremendous defensive performance, which they are fully capable of doing in this one as well. But it it is the same thing that people said about like Micah Parsons or whatever. And just like people get a little excited about things. And and there's a reality that defensive players could be a little bit neutralized in the way that a good offense can. Okay. Okay. Sure. This is the Seahawks team that when was the last time that they scored more than 20 points? It doesn't matter though. This is a Seahawks defense that is good for the first time. Yeah, they since... weren't playing the Cleveland defense. I'm telling you, they did score. They scored 17 th- points on offense against the Giants. I I think this week in particular, if you had, I, I don't know how you would exactly describe yards per play, turnovers, combination or whatever. If you were to say, which defense will play better in this game, the Seahawks or the Browns? I think the Seahawks are going to play a better game. Sure, yeah. That's why the percentage chance of victory is more than 50. 
But I think they're going to play a better game by a lot, and they don't necessarily need to. Apples to apples, I think the defense will be better. Well, they, but they even do. Then, no, because yeah. they could still play well in offense. Apples to apples, I do not think there is a chance that but the Browns' the offense defense is better. Won't play well. Fair enough. All right, let's wrap up with UW football. Coming off a fifteen to seven win Saturday against Arizona State. The fewest points the Huskies have scored in the Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix Jr. era. Uh, just eight, uh, nine of those, I guess, coming offensively because they had the uh, failed two-point conversion. It was tied for the fewest point yards per play in the DeBoer Penix era. They also had 5.2 last year in a win against Oregon State last November. Intriguingly, the other time it rained during a Husky home game the last two years. I'm not taking that as anything. Sorry. I There was like a full-on windstorm. My power was out the entire game against Oregon State. There wasn't like Ooh, rain. Fair. There was a storm. My po- uh, I don't think my power came back on until after the game. They had four turnovers. They had never previously had more than two turnovers in a game. Also, the 13 carries for the UW offense, which resulted in 13 yards, the fewest in school history. Uh, 13 carries for 13 yards. Yeah. Uh, what, what do we make of that performance? Aside from it being really frustrating to watch live. Not not ideal. Uh, I mean, hopefully there were a variety of factors that went into it that are not sustainable. I will say the one concern to me that I raised to you during the second quarter when you maintained the Huskies were going to win by 20 plus points. I told you on this podcast, 100% chance of victory. Through the first drive of the second half against Oregon, the Huskies had scored touchdowns on 57% of their drives and averaged 4.2 points per drive. And granted, yes, there was, that includes non-conference play, but pretty similar if you look Pac-12 games only, 54% touchdown rate, 4.0 points per drive. Since then, the game-winning touchdown against Oregon, the two-play drive, their only offensive TD in the last 15 drives, they've averaged a 1.1 points per drive. And as that yards per play figure shows last week, it's not just the turnovers and bad luck. It's also just they have not been moving the ball as consistently as they were throughout the start of the year. Oh, no. Are there any positives to take from this? Or or are there any... uh... I mean, I think the defense's play was a positive to take from this. I mean, they scored as many points, basically, as they gave up. Uh, I think they were a little fortunate in terms of Arizona State's Kenny Dillingham's really conservative decision-making in this game. But like, as frustrating as the missed tackles were and as angry as everyone was about it, like ultimately, Arizona State did not move the ball well at all in this game. And they bailed out the offense after some of the turnovers and then obviously with the Mishael Powell six pick six. That was awesome. The I, I agree. Pick six. It was I, also like we had a perfect view of it to see it coming our direction. You could see, oh, he's going to pick that. Oh, there's no one in front of him. <laughs> oh, he's got to break that one tackle from uh, Morgay. And then he did it and scored the touchdown because we were convinced had he been tackled that the Huskies were not going to score. A Which, think about how wild that is, how quickly your brain could adjust to that. We're like going into this game, the idea that we would against Arizona State be like, no way we're scoring a touchdown from the 25 or whatever. It is a wild thing that could happen very quickly. 
Uh, they also, in the previous drive against Oregon, were at the one-yard line. So, yes. What I am taking from this is, look, maybe Michael Penix is a little bit banged up. He was under the weather, according to the UW coaches on Saturday. He was under the weather. Yeah, that was their description. Description. I, it, that might be true. <laughs> I mean, that it, it happens. Bijan Robinson was under the weather and all of a sudden just didn't play. Like Michael Penix just didn't look right in the game. I am treating that as a one game. It was, I, I, I knew that I told you this on the podcast last week. I'm happy that there is, that there was Arizona state coming after Oregon. Cause I really felt like there was going to be a hangover game. And I think they just they put a lot in that one. They needed a little bit of a wake up call. It's like, hey, these games are still hard. This is still the Pac twelve. You're not playing against Tulsa or whatever. Like, although Tulsa might be fairly good overall, I suppose. Um, uh, Tulsa did rate higher than Arizona State coming into this game. Yes, but like, these are still competitive. They're going to be competitive games, and you can't take any of them for granted, especially once you get past this weekend at Stanford. But you got to beat Stanford first. So I, I am treating it as an anomaly and not a, until if it happens for another week, then maybe there's cause for concern going forward. But in the meantime, I would not expect this UW offense to be any less than what we expected them to be heading into the game, heading into the Oregon game. Ah, I think there's a little more cause for concern than that. I mentioned him being under the weather, but offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb seemed to put most of the offensive performance on Arizona State's ability to pressure Penix per pro football focus via Christian Capewell on Montlake. Penix was 19 to 23 for 189 yards when not blitzed, 8 of 18 for 87 yards against the Blitz. And uh, the Huskies during this game moved Parker Brailsford from center to right guard with Landon Hatchett coming in at center to replace his brother Gerian. Grubb explained that they were, quote, looking for answers, but he's uh, very confident Julius Bulow was going to be completely healthy this week. Okay. Bulow had That's started huge. a left guard prior to the injury, which pushes Nate Kaleppa to right guard and then Brailsford back to center with no hatchet bumps. <laughs> uh right before halloween too no hatchet brothers <laughs> doesn't sound right no hatchet uh, men the that that would be a massive a massive change if that happens uh fuel is able to come back but there's also a reality of like michael Penix just wasn't very sharp if you could just blitz michael Penix and all of a sudden you would be that bad then everybody would do that. There, there are ways to get around that. They just didn't quite work in that game. It wasn't particularly sharp in it. And I think that this UW offense is good enough to counteract being blitzed. I mean, that's the other thing Grubb said is they just didn't take advantage of the one-on-one matchups that blitzing was created. I mean, Penix, you know, the inter- the one interception was not a good decision to throw it off his back foot into traffic. Uh, the other interception batted down it's unlucky that that was intercepted. That's, a, most that's of the another time. one. They were at what the two yard line when that happened. I don't know if it was the two, lot, but there were a lot of series, not necessarily in Arizona State. There were a few series in Arizona State that UW should have scored or whatever. I think that those stats about the scoring are a little bit of the yards per play matters, but there was a little bit of just luck involved. 
Penix has had a lot of balls batted down the last couple of weeks, and you do worry a little bit that kind of just the the book is out on interior pressure and getting your hands up if you can't get all the way to the quarterback, which most people can't. I mean, he's still I don't I don't think he was sacked in this game, was he? He had the one run that basically got back to the line of scrimmage. So that's that's the bizarre thing is like, you know, so much of this is about pressure and the offensive line, etc. Still wasn't sacked. It's just that it it disrupted the timing of the offense repeatedly. Yes. So the two point conversion with the reverse to Roma doing say, and then Rome passing it or whatever, throwing it away. I love throwing it away out on two point conversion. <laughs> you don't want to give up that, that two point defensive score. I mean, it, it would have mattered actually. Yeah. Uh, but I, I hate the phrase getting too cute. That probably was getting too cute. No, I think I really think they were pressing. This to me felt like a team that has just things have worked for them kind of a lot over the last two years. And all of a sudden they weren't. And I think they pressed a little bit. I think Michael Penix pressed a little bit. I think that Ryan Grubb pressed a little bit. They needed to cool down. They just cool the fuck off for a second. And I think that's what Stanford is going to be. Huskies 26 and a half point favorites. Against God, Stanford. These numbers, it is so bonkers talking at the NFL and then talking about college and being like, like all of the, you know, like UW versus Stanford should be within the same ballpark, but as it were, it would be the biggest spread in all of NFL history. Yeah, Stanford, among those teams that still rates worse than Tulsa in terms of FBI efficiency, they're starting over under former Sacramento State coach Troy Taylor, who came on our radar as Jake Browning's high school coach before serving as offensive coordinator at Eastern Washington and Utah. Uh, Cardinal had just two coaches over the previous 16 years with the continuity of David Shaw being promoted to replace Jim Harbaugh after Harbaugh left for the 49ers. Stanford lost to Taylor's former team in week three, had only beaten Hawaii in the season opener before an improbable comeback against Colorado from a 29-0 halftime deficit to win 46-43 in overtime. And then they managed just seven points last week and they lost to UCLA, dropping to two and five. First year starting quarterback Ashton Taylor has completed 60% of his passes for 7.2 yards per attempt, ranking at eighth in Pac-12 QBR. Bizarrely, after rushing for 156 yards and three touchdowns in a wildcat role as a freshman, Taylor has just 88 yards and zero rushing touchdowns this year. It's back to Justin Lampson, uh, who has emerged as a rushing threat. He's got a pair of touchdowns and 159 yards, albeit with marginal EPA. EJ Smith, son of Emmett, has emerged as their leading running back option, but not getting many carries, just 10 the last two weeks combined, which went for 14 yards. The guy to watch on offense is obviously redshirt freshman Alec Ayamanor, a native of Medicine Hat. Really? Yeah, one of our favorites. Hello. I forget wow. what the team is. It almost, in it almost Hat. balances out the going to Stanford part of it. <laughs> you, you, you are against going to uh, Stanford, but so pro going to being from Medicine being from Hat. Medicine Hat. The Tigers are the team in Medicine Hat. I don't remember them as well as the Kamloops Blazers, certainly. Uh, he had 207 receiving yards in his first five games before exploding on the scene with 13 catches, 294 yards, three touchdowns at Colorado, including uh, some highlight reel stuff. 
then had a team high eight catches for 90 yards last week. The Stanford defense ranks 128th out of 133 in FPI efficiency, worst of any Power 5 team. They are last among Pac-12 teams in opponent EPA in both passes and runs and have forced to just three turnovers all season. So yes, this certainly should be a get-well game for the UW football offense. And if not, then we start have re- having real concerns about yes. what's going on. Uh, I I am not particularly... I mean, we're having like a neighborhood Halloween party during this game for most of it. And I'm hoping it's the kind of game where I just kind of like check it on my phone occasionally and I'm like, okay, cool, we're up by three touchdowns. I don't need to pay too much attention. I mean, well, we have the TV on at the last stop. I remember watching Sunday Night Football last year during this Halloween Halloween series of parties it's gonna be a different stop so i can't say i think it might be katie's house (laughs) oh well probably not someone who notoriously does not care about uw football didn't even manage to make it back for the oregon game after attending a wedding on the oregon coast the previous day where is your commitment the famous cousin katie this is this your mvp uh percentage chances of victory Definitely not going to say 100% again. No. Uh, that was not fun. I still think it is quite high, though. I'm I'm only going to 90, 95. 95 is about the right place for this one. FPI puts it in that ballpark, has it at 96%. So we'll see if Troy Taylor can pull out another offensive performance like we saw against Colorado. It seems unlikely in this one. And hopefully it is a stress-free game ahead of UW heading to USC the following week. Have they announced the time for that one yet, by the way? They have 4.30 p.m. for that one. Well, not good for me, but okay. No, not not good for your chances of doing that in the <sighs> wedding. Fuck. I, exciting for me because it means not roasting under the sun in uh, Memorial Coliseum all afternoon. So Is, I gotta it, is it supposed not... to be hot? Is there a forecast for then? I'm sure there is a forecast. There's always a forecast. <laughs> uh, but I think it's at, actually outside. Yeah, it's on the edge of the 10-day. Uh, and it is, as we know, not meaningful until you get in, inside a week, historically. Uh, the Let's see here. Oh, it's undefined, according, <laughs> according to whether... <laughs> Uh, I, I like your like as we know the ten day window for forecast as covered on extensively on the Felton cast. <laughs> the ten day window for forecast is what you should Hasht- really be paying attention. to. Hashtag Pelton cast meteorology. <laughs> it's uh, forecast to be seventy seven on Friday, which is a little cooler than the rest of the week, so probably somewhere in that range. Sounds great. And certainly more pleasant than the weather in Seattle in, in November as we move into that. Anything else on this one? Not really. Let's just get through it, win this game, stay healthy, and then play a game against USC that I think is harder than people are giving you credit for. Oh, it's way harder than people are giving you credit for. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.